0: About this, I do agree with H.P. Lovecraft that the Salem Witch Trials were onto something. Lovecraft's native state of Rhode Island was called by one of the men involved in the Salem Witch Trials, Cotton Mather, the sewer of New England. The reason being that people would flee there, and specifically in the founding of Providence, they would go there and, and made it what it was and called it what it was for reasons we'll look at today, because they needed to get away. And very often they needed to get away from very legitimate things like the question of whether darkness was being practiced in Salem, Massachusetts. It's our custom today to mock things like the Salem Witch Trials to assume that they were crazed or crazy, and especially if the word puritanical holds all kinds of ahistorical and almost entirely negative connections for us. Then we look at something like the Salem Witch Trials and we think they were crazy back then. There's no such thing as witches. There's no such thing as real pagans. People don't practice black magic. That's crazy. Lovecraft was not a Christian. He wasn't even close. He wasn't even a theist. Lovecraft was an atheist or something like it. Because in his chief story about his home city of Providence, Rhode Island, he wrote The Curious Case of Charles Dexter Ward. And Dexter Ward is a young man like Lovecraft growing up in Rhode Island who conceives an incredible interest in the past. And what's curious about the case is not that he's interested in the past. He is, in fact, specifically called time and again an antiquarian, not a historian. He just likes old things for being old, but that his interest in the past becomes indeed morbid as he learns specifically about an ancestor on his mother's side named Joseph Kerwin, who came to Providence in 1692, just in time to avoid being prosecuted for the Salem witch trials. I wanna read, just to start out today, a little bit from the Curious Case of Charles Dexter Ward, so that you have a sense of how this sounds, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes if you've never read the book before. It's very interesting, and he's describing what it is that mister Ward does as he's walking around Providence in the time around World War One and the early nineteen twenties. His walks were always adventures in antiquity, during which he managed to recapture from the myriad relics of a glamorous old city, a vivid and connected picture of the centuries before. His home was a great Georgian mansion atop the well nigh precipitous hill that rises just east of the river, And from the rear windows of its rambling wings he could look dizzily out over all the clustered spires domes roofs and skyscraper summits of the lower town to the purple hills of the countryside beyond here he was born and from the lovely classic porch of the double bayed brick facade his nurse had first wheeled him in his carriage as the little white farmhouse of 200 years before that the town had long ago overtaken and on toward the stately colleges along this shady, sumptuous street, whose old square brick mansions and smaller wooden houses with narrow, heavy column Doric porches dream solid and exclusive amid their generous yards and gardens. And he's describing the part of town that Lovecraft and Lovecraft's family on both sides were also from a part of town that was becoming increasingly distinct from a different part. And here is Ward going into other places. At other times, and in later years, he would seek for vivid contrasts, spending half a walk in the crumbling colonial regions northwest of his home, where the hill drops to the lower eminence of Stamper's Hill, with its ghetto and Negro quarter, clustering round the place where the Boston stagecoats used to stop start before the Revolution, and the other half in the gracious southerly realm about George, benevolent power, and William streets, where the old slope holds unchanged the fine estates and bits of walled garden and steep green lane in which so many fragrant memories linger. These rambles, together with the diligent studies which accompanied them, certainly account for a large amount of the antiquarian lore which at last crowded the modern world from Charles Ward's mind, and illustrate the mental soil upon which fell in that fateful winter of 1919-20. to the seeds that came to such strange and terrible fruition. Charles Ward is haunted by the past. And this becomes in his case, eventually rather literal, but let's think about why it is that horror was the way that Lovecraft described his own city, a city that he loved enough to produce not only that writing, but also all the letters where it's revealed that he knows absolutely everything there is to know about Providence. How could you look back in horror? A couple different ways to think about the past as a place of horror, because like a lot of other things that we'll say about Providence today in today's show, you'll find that this resembles the modern world much, much more than anything that I talked about in talking about Boston. And that doesn't mean that the hopeful note on which we ended in the last show is somehow fake there's always a way to look at the future in which you rely on we could say providence rather than relying on oneself a way in which the future opens up instead of being closed down and when you look at the future that way you also look at the past in a different way because it doesn't need to have been perfect or to return altogether the way that the spirit of the warlock joseph Kerwin Returns through his descendant Charles Ward in Lovecraft's story and then wreaks all manner of havoc, beginning with an escape from an asylum. What's a lot more familiar about how Lovecraft describes the past, and Lovecraft is much better known to modern Americans, partly through TV adaptations and film, than anyone like Cotton Mather, or even Lovecraft's own model for how he was writing about the past. From Boston's Athenian period, Nathaniel Hawthorne's writings, especially the House of the Seven Gables. Why would you look back in horror? A couple different ways to think about this, a way that so many people think about the past, that it was horrible, that it was terrifying, that it was dark. The first of those ways is to see the past as a time that is itself dead, and because it's dead, any way in which it continues to endure or might even come back. That is that you would bring something from the past back, and now it would exist. If you think the past is dead already in whatever form, whether it's a custom or it's a, a way of acting or a way of relating to each other or a way of organizing your society, if you think the past is dead, then of course there's something sick about bringing dead, trying to bring dead things back to life There's something very weird about that. And as Ward's interest in the past develops, because the past is understood as dead, as gone, well then, what he's doing is something like what Frankenstein tried to do. Remember, Frankenstein's monster is a cobbling together of formerly dead parts. Then, through the ingenuity of the scientist, that's Frankenstein, he brings those parts back together. And what Ward is doing with a sort of mystical New England twist, not a scientific twist, but horror and science fiction sit right next to each other here. He's trying to bring the dead back to life. It's in its own way and without engaging New Orleans, which we will, or Haiti, which we'll talk about when we talk about New Orleans. It is a kind of New England version of zombies, except it involves possession and paganism, the opposite of Calvinism. There's also something strange here about the past because it was so glorious in Ward's thinking and also in Lovecraft's that it almost couldn't exist anymore. And this was reflected not just in Ward but in Lovecraft himself who was such a peculiar man and and tried so strongly to present himself as an 18th century rationalistic englishman as if instead of having an opinion or or any kind of useful thought about what was going on today lovecraft instead thought that he would position himself down to the level of not spelling things in accord with normal american spelling after noah webster's dictionary <laughs> but instead that he would spell things the way that americans had spelled them in the 18th century the way that the british largely still do a story perhaps apocryphal but at least connecting today's place with our place from last time with boston or the boston area certainly its hinterlands is that reportedly when lovecraft went to see the battlefields of lexington and concord he saw the minuteman statue and i, and I know that you know it because if you've ever seen anything like a statue for the national guard you've seen the minuteman even if you've never been there to see him. Lovecraft walked up to the Minuteman statue and, and shouted. Of course, this is, you know, normal behavior in a, in a public place. He shouted, God save the king. <laughs> because that kind of a past was, was gone, right? A past that was inhabited not only by Lovecraft's ancestors, but inhabited under completely different circumstances. That was a past that was so gone and so glorious that everything about the present could really only be mourned. And, and in that attitude, I find Lovecraft not necessarily my, sympathetic myself, but I find him extremely recognizable because I think I meet people all the time who think about the past that way. It's gone. It was so wonderful nothing like that could ever happen again. So ironically, in that fullness of imagination about the past, there's also a shrinking of an imagination about the present and the future, because the past is so wonderful that you could never and and you would never bring it into the present so glorious as it had been. There's also what's happening with modern life, and you'll notice that although there's really particular detail about street names especially colonial street names and there's really particular detail about ward's own and just what i just what i read to you let alone the rest of this this short novel really particular detail about ward's childhood right where he went and and where his nurse took him and, and what those streets were like and what the vistas were like from different parts of providence you'll notice that when he goes somewhere that that doesn't partake of that past that the detail is very vague, the ghetto and Negro quarter, which basically means all of the recent immigrants, either from the American South, those are the blacks, or from overseas who are going to be, in the case of Providence, overwhelmingly Italian, but also Irish and Portuguese. There's no detail on those folks. I mean, they just, it's, it's, they exist, but they, they just don't matter. Because the idea that the present would be something that you would deal with or describe, or know in detail, is just not on. Can't do it, doesn't do it, you won't find it. In what is probably sort of a parable of his thoughts about immigration in his time, in Lovecraft's time, which is also Charles Ward's present, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, in that parable, you can really only figure people from overseas as just kind of monsters, right? They have, they don't have any, anything like the detail that is given to the past. So again, the past kind of sits as a weight over the present. And the present is very fuzzy, and the past is very clear. And because of that, the present just is not a place you even want to be. And that's a way that the past can become even in its glories, in its light, in its beauty, in the way that it will never be matched, the past can become a place of utter, absolute horror. And this is where you want to begin to think about horror as a really defining genre for Americans. And there are different reasons for that, that we could talk about. But in today's terms, I want to talk about horror, not as a kind of, as a form of entertainment, Because I don't really think it's accidental that somebody that thinks about the past the the way Lovecraft did, or who came up in a city where the past was so drastically different from the present, which is not just a description of Providence, Rhode Island, from colonial times to today. It's a description of almost everywhere in America from 100 years ago to today. Drastically different. Totally different people, totally different things, totally different occupations. So this is a problem we kind of all have we're using providence rhode island today as an exemplar for this because in its way it's much more modern than the city at least in its founding much more modern than the city we described last time because here horror is not a matter of entertainment like you you watch the movie and you're scared and that was fun and now you go back to regular life horror here is a diagnosis of what it is like to live either among zombies things gone or among things present you don't even have words for you don't understand those people you don't even understand maybe literally the language that they speak and if you go far enough back in the past which happens at the very end of this story of the case of charles dexter ward if you go far enough back in the past you'll find that in lovecraft who's ostensibly an atheist universe There are the elder gods or the old ones who are inexpressibly terrible, but have been called on throughout New England's history, including in the life of Joseph Kerwin, first in Salem, Massachusetts, and then later in Providence, Rhode Island. And now in Lovecraft's present in the late 1920s, now here today in Providence, Rhode Island, they haunt us because the past is the site of horror. So if it comes into the present, strange and vague as the present might be, if the the past shows up, we're all going to be terrified. And in fact, what you can find is that this is a story then mostly, it's a story mostly of possession. So that then this city, as well as places and people for whom the past is not a source of pride or a source of useful information or a source of lessons or a source of delight, And the lessons and the delight kind of sum up what history is for if you're Herodotus. But the past is instead a source of potential possession. It's where demons come from to possess you and then force you out to live among the tombs, which is where Charles Ward ends up like the Gadarene demoniac in the Gospels. Now, the past does have horrors that we often don't even know. It's it's not even that we forgot them. We just don't know that they occurred. Southerners will generally know, and some Yankees will remember that Atlanta was burned during the Civil War. Very, very few people know that Providence, Rhode Island doesn't have that many buildings as old as perhaps it should. It was founded in 1636, but its oldest buildings date to the very late 17th century. And that's because, not just because, the early settlers who came there with Roger Williams, whose story we'll tell in a minute, that they built in wood and and wood falls down and it rots in the humid atmosphere of New England. That's all true. But it's because in 1675, Providence was burned to the ground in what is now called King Philip's War, but is just called, if you go back in these kinds of records, and I'm sure someone like Charles Ward and certainly Howard Phillips Lovecraft knew this. Back in the records, they just call it the Indian War there were others before it and there were others after it but they call this one the indian war because it's the decisive one now providence was founded in a very unusual way and we want to tell both the english side of this and the indian side of it because the reason partly that what happened in 1675 was called the indian war was because it it stopped this dynamic that had existed from the beginning We said last time it might be helpful to you if, when you think about any part of a frontier, you think about the Englishmen in this case, or or the Spanish in the history of Mexico, or the French in the history of Quebec, or whatever. If you think of them at least initially, before they gain great power, as just another tribe, and among those tribes they succeed, or they fail, or they're pushed back, or whatever the case may be. Now Providence had started with great friendship between Englishmen and Indians. And this is all catalyzed by a man named Roger Williams. And you can go to a very, very tiny national park. It's run by the National Park Service in Providence. And you can see a statue of Roger Williams. I believe he's holding a book that is titled Soul Liberty, an idea we'll explain later on. And You think, okay, who was this? What relationship does he have to anything or anyone that I'm seeing around me? But Roger Williams is a name that should be much better known for this reason. He has an idea that is very strange in his time, that is very important and very common in ours. Roger Williams first came to America as a very promising young clergyman, and he came to Boston, and in Boston, he immediately was going to be sort of promoted. He was made teacher of a congregation. This is, I don't know, something like a teaching pastor or something like that. So he's not the only pastor, but he's he's doing most of the teaching. And people like him, and he's a good speaker. He was a very passionate, charismatic man. But the problem that he had not so much in himself as with other people the problem that he had was that he did not believe that the way boston was set up was legitimate according to the bible you know he thought you know in the bible the magistrate and the clergyman don't have anything to do with each other right the clergyman preaches the gospel the magistrate does his thing and the clergyman doesn't you know he can't make anybody believe so so they shouldn't here in in this new england they shouldn't here either have anything to do with each other right mean, that that was that was his thinking now in 1636 that is a really strange idea and in fact he got to america in 1630 and and it was strange then too 6 years earlier so he's got some problems. They they can't really bring him on full time. Therefore, in this congregation, because of these strange ideas, he's admonished by different people. You know, you, you really need to rethink this. It's, you know, it, it it's not really true. The the state actually does need to protect the church and and the magistrates should uphold God's law. Okay, so he goes up to a place you've heard of before, but not because of Roger Williams, but because of witches, whether you believe they're real or not. He goes up to Salem, Massachusetts, 1631, 1632, and he keeps going with the same stuff. He's actually even more popular in Salem than he was in Boston. So this is kind of a problem, because now there's going to be a congregation that basically wants to, we would say in today's parlance, call him and make him their their pastor as their as their older pastor there in that church in salem retires or I, maybe he went away i can't recall exactly but they want to make roger williams the guy right well here's the difficulty he, he hasn't changed his mind and he's he's really good at talking and so you know people believe him when when he talks Well, we can't have that. So the authorities in Boston notify those in Salem that there will be consequences for their fellowship status. And remember, this also has to do not just with, you know, your church is not in our denomination anymore. This is also their relationship to the state, their relationship to defense, their relationship to commerce is connected to the relationship to this covenant and the way in which the churches walk together right it's just as an aside this is one reason i find the idea that americans are categorically individualists to just be nuts maybe that's true in your atomized suburb today it certainly was not true then <laughs> okay congregations are writing to each other about what the problem is and they say you got to fix this or there are going to be even bigger problems all this means that roger williams cannot make a living as a clergyman anywhere in the massachusetts bay company or their colony so he's going to stop by plymouth so going south and east into into that territory And those guys are a little more radical, but guess what? Even though they're separated from the Church of England, they still think that the church and the state need to be harmonized in a way that Roger believes is biblically illegitimate. So, still can't get a job doing what he is trained to do, even in the Plymouth colony. So what he begins to do in the mid-1630s, leading up to 1636, leading up to the founding in that year of Providence, is that he begins to trade with the Indians. And he has an approach that is very amenable to them. And we're talking about different tribes in these different places, n- not the same tribes. And the Plymouth colony is up by Salem, as near Boston, as certainly by where Providence is going to go, Providence being dominated by a tribe, that area called the Narragansett. He's trading with these various people. They all speak a r- sort of related, you could say, dialects, you could say, languages. He calls it the language of America. It's it's an Algonquin language. That's the language family related to the folks up and down the coast here, running all the way down into North Carolina. But New England has its own version, and it's the reason that a lot of Indian named places in New England sound familiar. You know, Pawtucket can sort of sound like Connecticut can sort of sound like Niantic, right? Right. And he learns this language. And he writes a really fascinating book called A Key into the Language of America, because he learns this language, he becomes fluent, and he especially takes up with a chief and with his, I believe it's his grandson. The chief is called Canonicus by the English, and this, the grandson is called Myantonomy. And they they take up with each other, they like each other, they get along with each other. They do not have an adversarial relationship with each other, such as many tribes had with the english and williams is on his own in these journeys and as he comes back he realizes okay nothing is really gonna happen for me anywhere else this part of southern new england is is uncharted and it's uncharted so no english company is responsible for it and very few maps of such a place exist it's 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 the frontier So Williams figures out, okay, there are other people who are discontented with what's going on, particularly in and around Boston, and and under its regime, and under its orthodoxy, and under its understanding that the churches are corporate bodies, and they're answerable to each other, and when you're born there, you get baptized there, and when you're baptized there, you get catechized there, and when you get catechized, you become an adult covenant member and then you have all these responsibilities and you go on to serve as a town selectman and you do all this stuff because you're all accountable to each other. Williams has a fundamentally different vision of things and that is what is written on that book, on that statue and that is the idea of what will come to be called soul liberty. It's an idea that if you are or you grew up Baptist, you are very familiar with Because, at its heart, is the idea that each soul is individually accountable to God. It's part of the reason that if you are Baptist, or you grew up Baptist, or maybe even if you aren't or you didn't, you've heard the word credo-baptist as opposed to pedo baptist meaning you baptize believers, people who have accepted that responsibility, who are being baptized in obedience to the commandment of Jesus Christ. who are are partaking of his ordinances because he said so, and they understand what they're doing. Not because someone else told them, because they were paedo-baptists, because they were baptized as children. No, it's because they understood and they took it on themselves. And that is each soul's responsibility. So, lots of things, lots of things that are normal everywhere else in Williams' world, he cannot accept. He cannot accept the idea that the covenant would be something that you would be born into. Covenant children, baptized children. He cannot accept the idea that the government would in any way have anything to do with what anyone thinks about anything involving God. That's an encroachment upon the soul's natural liberty. Therefore, also, that sort of corporate approach to evangelizing the Indians that had been taken up by, we mentioned last time, John Eliot, or later on, much later on, by Jonathan Edwards, but generally that saw the Indians as being a group of people who would be evangelized as a group and not approached necessarily through, specifically through one on one relationships, that you would relate to people as individuals and not as members of groups, because Groups are not natural, only individuals are, you see how, well, you could say ahead of his time. I'll just say modern, because ahead of his time sounds like it's a compliment. I'm not sure I want to compliment anything about this, but it was ahead of his time. It's very recognizable to us. Other people have these ideas because what's going on in Boston is not just that people are buying into what Boston has to offer, but also that people are coming from England realizing I was discontented with what was going on in England, in some cases France too, some Huguenots in the mix. But they're also discontented with what's going on in Massachusetts and they want something else. A large number of these come out of something that if you've never looked into it, it might be helpful to study, particularly if you are a pastor. It's called the Antinomian Controversy, or sometimes today it's called the Free Grace Controversy. It's sparked by a lady named Anne Hutchinson, particularly, in her critique of her pastor's sermons a Mr. Wilson in Boston. And she sides with the other clergyman at the congregation, John Cotton some of it is a little hard to understand the significance being though she is condemned by a tribunal of the state for opposing god's word and during her trial in case mrs hutchinson wanted not to burn all bridges mrs hutchinson says that god has shown her directly by direct inspiration that the works of these professors of works, these opponents of free grace, she's, she's the proponent of free grace, or she is the antinomian if you are siding against her, that these professors of works are under God's curse. So, you know, time is up for Mrs. Hutchinson at that point. Her husband, who is a fairly wealthy merchant, along with several other people who are disarmed by the authorities at this point, because they're, under, they're thought of as, as dangers to the commonwealth, so their, their weapons are taken away, and, and they cannot abide living under a situation in which their weapons have been taken away, so this group will go south in 1637 to what we now call Rhode Island, to an area near the town that Roger Williams, along with other people, had founded the year before, called Providence. In time, the four main towns of what we now call the state of Rhode Island will get together and, and compact, but what's interesting about what they agree to do together, and what's interesting about a document that a couple decades later they obtain from the king when they finally get a royal charter in 1663, recognizing them as existing, that it's okay for them to exist, is that none of those documents says anything about religion. And you would think that's a little odd for people of Puritan heritage, but it really wasn't. Because what they had founded in, in giving place to this vision of soul liberty, the right to decide for yourself, is that they, they got for themselves a variety nobody else had. We've talked before on the show about, for instance, the history of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is probably the closest thing to Rhode Island, but it doesn't have the variety per capita. that Rhode Island does. Rhode Island is a little bit more like a modern American place where if you go into a place of any sufficient population, you can find dozens, not just of denominations, dozens, not just of viewpoints within denominations, you can find dozens of religions if the place is sufficiently large. And almost anywhere you go, you can find at least several varieties of Christianity. How did Rhode Island get that many different kinds of people? Because in order to be there, you didn't have to believe anything particularly at all. I want to go through some of the groups because I think it's fascinating the way that whether you think it's horrible, a matter of horror or not, we're there that so much resembles today. You, of course, had what were called at that time in England independence, what we would now call Congregationalists, what was, in fact, essentially the state form of religion in all the rest of New England. So the Hutchinsons didn't come down to Rhode Island and start something totally new. They started a, a free grace version of what they were already familiar with, but not at all connected to Boston, not at all connected to Hartford or New Haven or any of the other Boston-like colonies, not networked there, but instead pointed toward the sea, in fact. And we'll talk about what everyone had in common. The thing that really prevails in Rhode Island is, of course, what Roger Williams sets out to prevail. And this was largely gone by Lovecraft's birth in the late 19th century. But what's what Roger Williams became in time was a Baptist. In fact, the mother church of all Baptist churches in America is still there in Providence, Rhode Island. In fact, called the first Baptist church in America. That's its name. <laughs> okay. That's not just a, a title or a moniker. That's its name. The first Baptist church in america so you might have a first baptist church in your town it's not the first baptist church in america that's just the one in providence rhode island and they would at that time have been in the whole scheme of things relatively calvinistic relatively reformed baptists although of course the london confession of faith doesn't exist in 1636 but in addition to that rhode island would also produce all kinds of baptists including a kind to which my own family is rather strangely and deeply connected, called the Seventh-day Baptists. Eventually, in time, through the craziness of the English Civil War, you would get Baptists in London, particularly in England, who came to believe that the Sabbath was to be kept on Saturdays. Okay, that's why they're Seventh-day Baptists who are in all other respects, you might think, normal Baptists, (laughs) such as it is, even though I'm trying to stress Baptists are really, really, really strange in America at this time. And they're going to come over and evangelize, as it were, the Baptists in Providence, and particularly in what was a much bigger and more important city to start with, certainly throughout colonial times, and that is Newport, Rhode Island. And out of that Seventh-day Baptist, congregations will Will spread so you have all different kinds of baptists throughout rhode island in addition to that you're also going to get some stranger things you're going to get quakers who are illegal in the rest of new england and part of the reason that cotton mather called rhode island the sewer of new england it's also because you have a group that are called really loosely in england the familists or the family of love or sometimes called after their leader in Rhode Island, the Gortonites for Samuel Gorton, the guy that led them down there. The significance of them is very interesting because they're an example almost of what you would describe as non-denominational Christianity, meaning each individual church has no connection to any other congregation. A form of organization, completely foreign, even to what are called congregational lists, (laughs) who are always in practice as Baptists would be associated with each other and in communication, not only with churches in America, but also back home in England. What's interesting about all of that is that it is not only legal from the first and then approved by royal charter in 1663. It also produces very interestingly an indifference to religion that is also somewhat unprecedented anywhere else in that Rhode Island unlike even Pennsylvania which had a test for political office that required affirmation for example of the Trinity something that the family of love something that even some Quakers something certainly that a group that would come to be fairly large especially Newport Rhode Island uh which is Jews especially coming up from Brazil even Pennsylvania had a had a Trinitarian test for office in time. Rhode Island never had anything like that. So in that way, Rhode Island resembles modern America in a way that no other colony does. So what held all of this together? What holds people together when they don't really have a past in common? <laughs> but, you know, they they do live in proximity to each other. And I I love phrasing the question that way because that's that's almost all of us everywhere today. Well, in Rhode Island, they have in common, and this is basically going to be the sole answer, but it's a powerful one. They have in common the making of money. If you're wondering how mammon comes to capture people, and I, I think, you know, honestly, I think mammon captures people's hearts the less that they talk, that they are free to talk about it, right? So Jesus can talk about money, Paul can talk about money when and where we just don't talk about it, I think it has an unusual power to capture people's hearts, even where not discussed, and maybe especially where not discussed, because it's not like it goes away. What happens with Rhode Island is that what they have in common are a very favorable set of circumstances for commerce, right? If you are a good place to to ship into and out of, that's a good place to ship goods into and out of, and it's a good place, in Rhode Island's case, to ship people into and out of. So Rhode Island will be one of the chief places in what's called the triangle trade. And we've made the point before that the vast majority of slaves from West Africa go to South America. But of the ones who come to North America, it's not only that a lot of them actually do get shipped into Rhode Island. So Rhode Island is going to have the largest Slave population of any colony in New England, but I, I believe also just in the North generally, and the North doesn't include Maryland at this time. In the North, generally, they're going to have, I think, at the revolution, roughly ten percent of the population is are slaves. That's really extremely high. Now it's proportionate, right? So Rhode Island's population is always small. It's proportionate. But, Proportionally, that's enormous, especially since there's nothing like plantation agriculture going on there ever <laughs> on any kind of scale. And the vast majority of the slaves are going to be in the cities in Newport and in Providence, particularly because Rhode Island will be one of the, not a, maybe a stop, but certainly a place where people who are involved in the trade, wherever the ships do land, when they come to North America, It's going to be a place where people live particularly in providence and in newport who are making money off that triangle trade and what that means is that sugar is going to be shipped along often with slaves to north america from the caribbean that sugar will be made into rum in the caribbean as well as in america rum is kind of the standard colonial drink in a way that whiskey is not whiskey is really only standard eventually in the back country And Rhode Island has what are called swamp Yankees. We would call them like rednecks, but it doesn't exactly, it's not big enough to have a backcountry in that sense to be far enough away. You'd want to make whiskey mostly. Rum is the major drink that's going to be brought in and out. Slaves are going to be brought in and out. And then things like rum are going to be shipped to West Africa and traded for slaves, and the slaves will be brought to the Caribbean, and then the sugar will be brought from the Caribbean to North America. That's the basics of the triangle. There's more going on. Obviously, there's more being shipped, but those are the basics. Obviously, in any place where you have one of those ingredients, sugar or slaves or rum, you're going to have the other two in some kind of numbers, and that's how you get so many slaves in Rhode Island. It's also how you get so much wealth in Rhode Island. So if you go learn anything about the American Revolution, for example, you'll find that Rhode Island plays a really outsized role in people's thinking and the number of generals that came from Rhode Island, and as well as obviously also admirals or, or famous ships captains, because it is tremendously wealthy per capita. And that's really because of that triangle trade. Ultimately, it's because of the most valuable thing in that triangle trade, which is slavery. There's a great irony here. Obviously, a huge irony that this is a place that people originally come to be inordinately, I mean, free in a way, nobody else is free. <laughs> right? You can come as an individual and you can think whatever you want. You can't do whatever you want. Um, and a lot of the forms of government at least originally look a lot like other places in New England. That's a function of the predominant group who are also English Puritans at least. In a way but you you're free to do almost anything you want ironically (laughs) that's going to wind up not only with forms of social organization or religious groups that don't exist anywhere else just kind of a a zoo a human zoo but it's also going to wind up with a lot more slaves than you would think have any reason to be there whatsoever So I want to describe in a way that I think will be recognizable in a couple different particulars. I want to describe early providence in three different ways under this idea that in being indifferent to how a person thinks about God, and then having that reflected not only in what he's free to do, but also in how the state is organized that has nothing to do with religion, specifically speaking. How that actually plays out. Because I think we'll find that the past is it, I don't, I don't think it's dead at all. I think different versions of the past are more or less alive, and that this version is really alive. So a couple different ways. So indifference to somebody else's religious ideas does not, in fact, lead to the acknowledgement of providence and this is this is an enormous irony because the reason that williams names the place providence is because he says nothing but god's providence could have brought me here enabled me to survive enabled me to live here enabled me to not be killed for my religious convictions before now ironically the soul that is free not to acknowledge god may actually just wind up being Irreligious. So, if something that, you know, I I say I have ironically in common here with H.P. Lovecraft is that we both have ancestors involved in starting Providence, antinomians specifically, is that regardless of whether I agree with them on soul liberty, I at least agree with them in worshiping the Christian God, and he did not. Because when the soul is free to be detached, even somebody with a deep antiquarian interest in his ancestors such as Lovecraft had, minute knowledge of people that I will never possess, he did not feel that he needed to follow them in worshiping the God whom they felt they needed to be utterly free to worship boston was too constricting plymouth too constricting they had to come to providence to worship god in a way suitable to their conscience which could not be forced well if it can't be forced it doesn't even have to be forced to worship god so it's a good way to get yourself into a certain proportion of the population being openly atheistic is to make it thinkable possible livable doable for people not to acknowledge God at all. Not even in the vague way that the state of Colorado still has. Its state model is nothing without the deity, nil sine numine, right there on the state seal. I'm not sure what it has to do with anything day to day, but it's still there on the seal. Rhode Island has an anchor, which is the picture of hope, a very Christian picture from the letter to the Hebrews, right there on its seal. But Lovecraft didn't believe in any of this stuff. I don't think it's strange then that especially if your ancestors were so drastically different from you and having this strict Christian profession of, if you have Rhode Island ancestors at all, probably a wide variety of kinds, that the past would seem like a horror. And it would seem like a place where somebody like Lovecraft, at least in Boston, wouldn't even have been able to exist. But that indifference to one's religious opinions also produces an indifference to the acknowledgement, really ironically, of providence. In addition to that, it doesn't actually produce, saying that you know, you're free to believe whatever you want, it doesn't actually produce friendship, comity, among people who should be friendly or brotherly. There's a really interesting story here about the founding of the Ivy League University that's in Rhode Island, that's in Providence, which is Brown University, named for a family that was particularly prominent in the city, three Baptists, all raised Baptists, three Baptist brothers, one Quaker brother, Moses Brown, has his own Quaker school there in Providence now. Is that what they thought, okay, we have all these other colleges being founded, Princeton has been founded now, Yale has been founded, of course, Harvard has been around for more than a century at this time. We need our own thing here in Rhode Island because we're wealthy, we're important, but it's kind of like we're being held back. We don't have our own thing. And so in a very Providence kind of a way, originally they start out, they say, we're going to have one that it's not going to be sectarian. And there will even be claims that Brown, and I think this is on their website, I think I saw it, that they're the first college where you didn't have to have a religious test to get in. Again, This is where Rhode Island is kind of beyond Pennsylvania in the liberty afforded. It's not quite true. It's not not exactly true. Yeah, there's no necessarily religious test to get in, but there are religious classes. There's basically the expectation you're going to be some kind of Christian. And they actually wanted it to be governed in that kind of ecumenical or non-denominational christian way that you wouldn't be able to present a particular kind of christian theology in the theology classes or whatever it might be they were trying to do this right um, and in fact a large part of the impetus for this comes from a congregationalist pastor ezra styles who was in newport but just because you're supposed to be indifferent to these differences doesn't mean that people in fact are you're, you're supposed to have some sort of pan-Protestant thing or whatever you're trying to do, it doesn't mean that people just give up on what they think. Because what happened <laughs> was that the Baptists who were had the most numbers, okay? The Baptists had the most numbers in Rhode Island. So what they did was they basically stacked all of the original meetings to get this thing going so that eventually they would be in charge. And it wound up that, yeah, there would be Quakers, there would be Episcopalians, there would be Congregationalists represented on the Board of Trustees that controlled the college, but this college would be governed by Baptists. It would effectively be the Baptist Harvard, or the Baptist Princeton, or the Baptist Yale. That's how it wound up. Because when anybody can think anything, it turns out that people don't just stop magically being competitive about what they think. Now, the other thing that you're going to see if you continue the history of Providence a little bit farther is that indifference to what people do doesn't actually produce either friendship among Christians, and it doesn't help you produce equality among men. I've mentioned before how wealthy Providence was, especially in its founding, but I haven't mentioned how much that continued being the case how eventually newport rhode island became a resort for very very wealthy southern planters before the civil war and then after the civil war and this is what you can see mostly if you go visit newport today are the beautiful homes the mansions built by the gilded age wealthy aristocracy after the civil war is that it continued being a place that was highly highly Stratified, that people didn't really have anything together in particular to do. You could be really benefited by the wealth of the Brown family if you were a Baptist. You could be really benefited by the wealth of the Babcock family if you were a Seventh day Baptist. You could be benefited by various people if you were various things that they also were, but the notion of a public good or a public covenant recedes and recedes. I mean, it's it's just not even there. It's almost like there is no public good. There are goods. Here's the good for the Jews. Here's the good for the Baptists. Here's the good for the Episcopalians. Here's the good for the Quakers. And if you have something in common, you're going to fight over it because there's no particular thing that it needs to be. And if you happen to be poor in such a place, guess what? The wealthy are not going to be doing a whole lot for you because what is their connection to you? The form of government is not set up for them to to benefit you. So the fights within the politics of Rhode Island, and this is why they don't in fact ratify the constitution when everyone else does, and why later on in the 19th century, they have a big fight about whether almost anyone is gonna be allowed to vote who doesn't have a lot of money and property called Doors Rebellion. The reason they have all this is because nobody has anything in common. I guess you're free, but you don't have a lot in common with with anybody. If you do have something in common with anybody else, it's just a, a function of sheer demographics. So a lot of what I've described today doesn't look recognizable if you go to Providence today, because Providence has changed. The people that Lovecraft described as living in the ghetto are, in fact, the vast majority population of the state of Rhode Island today. Rhode Island is the most Italian state in the union, and it has really large uh, populations also from the former Portuguese empire. So Portugal itself, but also Brazil and Cape Verde, Lusophone populations, Portuguese speaking populations. It's got a lot of different folks, right? Very few people carrying on some sort of colonial uh, dissident Yankee heritage a la Howard Phillips Lovecraft. And that's because, in a way very recognizable to us, in a society governed largely by commerce, I mean functionally, that's why people are where they are, that's why they move where they move, they're willing to move for a job, governed largely by commerce, And then politically governed, at least ostensibly by sheer demographic weight, who votes for what and how many votes are there in that group of people, there's no particular form that anything has to have. And if you have no particular religious commitments, and in time, Boston itself would become like this too. That's why Providence is younger. But it's a lot, I mean, it's a little younger, right? Providence is younger, but it's a lot more recognizable than what we described last time. Because it's really all about whether you have Roger Williams being a Baptist minister, followed by John Clark, followed by all kinds of people, or later on, in a way that if you're really interested in Providence, you can go find, a. I think it was called Crime Town was the podcast. You can go find a whole series about Providence and And their mayor buddy cnc that's an italian name right but he was also one of the first to approve of same-sex unions or, or civil unions which came to rhode island before they came to many other places in the union before we all had to approve of such things by law right it's because in such a place that can change really rapidly, there's no specific form anything has to have because everybody's united. Yeah, it's commerce. Yeah, it's voting, I guess, right? But fundamentally, it's about freedom from, or what we could call negative freedom soul liberty you could present it in all kinds of positive ways i guess if you wanted to i i can't do that in earnest i'm not performing here on this podcast i actually mean what i say to me it just looks so it just it's negative i don't have to believe what my parents believed i don't have to do what i was told to do i don't have to honor past generations at all particularly i I can do what i want I can determine my own self. And if Williams did that in ways that are fairly recognizable to us today, others didn't. Others did very odd things. And and Lovecraft knew that. And I think he put it, he put that figure of Joseph Kerwin in there to show you look, when, when you can do whatever you want, people don't just do things that you find sympathetic or interesting or something. And maybe if Roger Williams were a Lutheran, many of the listeners would say, what's the problem with Roger Williams? But maybe a lot of the people that founded our church also were looking for freedom from, right? And they thought that that would mean freedom for. And they thought freedom from is the greatest. Let's let's get everybody and all ancient attachments out of the way, and then we can be what we really want to be, what we've determined to be. Freedom from. Here's the thing about freedom from. It has incredible power in your own generation. It doesn't have any power in the past necessarily because what you want to be free from may be something that in the past, nobody thought was a problem. But at your time, it has incredible power, the same way that your desire to differentiate yourself from your parents has really enormous power when you're 16 years old, that it doesn't when you're 56 years old. And you probably wish that, Your parents were so much like you that they were still alive and around to be with you at that age if they're already gone. But when you were 16, the freedom from them had incredible power. Negative freedom always has incredible power at the present, especially when we feel it as restraint. Somebody illegitimately restraining us from being what we should be or being what we want to be or even just being able to think about what we want to be. And I mean that talking about everything from what we want to be in relationship to God, all the way down to the smallest details. Freedom from this negative freedom has incredible power in the present. It doesn't have a lot of power and it becomes very impoverished for the future. Because the thing about the future is that if you're trying to to endure at all I mean if you're just completely nihilistic and and the future doesn't matter and you don't care and you're, you're child free especially so you don't have to worry about the future you've chosen that whatever right then what I'm gonna say doesn't doesn't matter if you think about the future in a way where you would want to build something build a legacy that would endure build something where Rhode Island would not just be Baptist. Today, it would be Baptist in 300 years in it. Then you kind of have to have something a little bit more than negative freedom to offer. The idea that what you have to offer is you can do whatever you want. That's appealing to almost anybody at least once. And, And for some people, it's appealing all the time. The problem is, it doesn't really have a lot to do with the future. And what's interesting is that if you want to talk about individualism, okay, whatever, whatever that means, you'd have to locate its appeal, not in some specific, specific religious heritage, because in the case of Providence or Rhode Island more broadly, you, you find it in almost everybody. I mean, everybody is into this. That, that freedom from, that capacity to decide what you want to do means that you really cannot build a legacy. Nothing is going to endure except the witness that you, you, you chose your own way. Like your kids could do that too. Your grandkids could do that too. They could choose for you not even to have great grandkids. They could choose. It turns out that's appealing to everybody. Maybe it's horrible, but it's appealing to everybody. Because it's not just Roger Williams or Anne Hutchinson or Samuel Gorton who chose that. Later on, it was their descendant, Howard Phillips Lovecraft, who chose not to believe in God, even though all his ancestors did in some fashion. And he was obsessed with them, but not with the God they worship. But Buddy Cianci chose the same thing and and on and on and on. This is appealing to lots of people. This isn't, it can't be located in one specific historical influence other than to say that the reason that what we've described today looks familiar is because whether you love it or whether you hate it, it is who we have become. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our western heritage a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene, Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at BlessedSacramentLutheranChurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the beautiful Inland Northwest.